0: Of late, there has been on Facebook something called the Facebook 10-Year Challenge. How many of you have actually participated in this? By posting a picture of yourself this year and one from 2009. Good. You're as vainglorious as I am, and you were not going to participate. I had one one word that kept me from participating, and no, it isn't ego. Well, ultimately, I guess it's ego, but that word is Carolyn. Carolyn. Um, my wife is a freak of nature. Uh, When she was in high school, she looked like she was in elementary school. When she had her first job teaching, they mistook her for one of the elementary school kids. Uh, And while that may have worked against her uh, when she was young, she is getting even with the world now. At 53, most people can't believe that she's 53. And, uh, It is happening at my comparative expense. Um, Every year we send out Christmas cards. You know, me, Carolyn, the kids. And every year I get the same response. The kids, they're big. I can't believe how grown up they are. And Carolyn never ages. And then just dead air. My name comes into nowhere into the conversation at all. You know, just move on. This is why it is difficult for me to look at 10 years of aging, 10 years of going gray, 10 years of raising teenagers. Um, They took their toll on me, but I'm not being overly sensitive, I promise you, this is my life, 29 years of marriage, and the constant refrain I've heard is, man, did you marry up? I have never once, I agree with that, by the way, but never once in three decades have I ever heard anyone even hint that that rope swings both ways. And again, I get it. I mean, I'm not expecting strangers to walk up to Carolyn and say, you know, wow, you certainly married up. I mean, that would be rude. But not even her friends have hinted that, you know, Carolyn, you kind of got lucky. I mean, nothing. See, you can infer a lot about what people say. Let me give you another example from Facebook, all right? Facebook has been this great thing where I get to reconnect with people from my childhood. And one such friend and I reconnected months ago, and uh, she has traveled the world with her husband, uh, and she is a Christian and and has grandkids already, And and I knew her in elementary and middle school and high school. And let me see how you'd interpret the first thing she would have said to me in nearly three decades, four decades. Hi, Chuck. First of all, it's awesome to see that God is using you. Never would have thought that you'd have been a pastor, but God uses anyone. I kid you not. So do you when you hear that, do you go, She's marveling in the grace and glory of Jesus, or do you hear her commenting on the brokenness of humanity and her view of me? And I got to tell you, both of those things are true, so it's not like I'm arguing with the woman, but I don't need you to reinforce that for me. (laughs) Daily I'm faced with this reality, and uh, thank you for bringing it up. I would say you obviously can learn a lot about what people think, about what they think about you, about what they think about the world around them by what they say, but I would say even more so, you can learn a lot about what people believe by listening to what they pray. Now, I don't want you to be sensitive to praying in my presence when I say this next, but I just got to tell you, as a pastor, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings with people And not people from this church, mind you. I go to ecumenical prayer meetings and all sorts of things over the 25 years I've been doing ministry. And I've heard people uh, talk to God in ways that indicate that they believe very differently than do I about what they should both expect from the Lord and how they are actually supposed to approach the Lord. Over the years, I've become a bit adept at discerning what someone's theological leanings are in part by listening to them pray. They start claiming BMWs in the middle of prayer. I kind of get an idea that they're not a Presbyterian. Um, as well, by listening to somebody pray, you can tell what's really on their heart, which is the value of being in a community group. By praying together with others, you can infer, sometimes from people who are real, super reluctant to just share what's going on in their life, you can hear In their heart, what's really troubling them, their worries, their fears, their joys. You can mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, For the next two Sundays, today and next week, we're going to look at Jesus' what's called His high priestly prayer. Uh, Today, we're going to look at what He prayed for Himself and what we can learn by inference listening to Jesus pray. What does Jesus think? What does Jesus believe about him, about the world, about God, about everything? And then next week, we're going to look at what Jesus prayed for others. And our aim today, especially, is to listen to the prayer of Jesus and then catch a glimpse of him and what he believes. You see, if Jesus is saying something, if Jesus is praying something, then it must be true. Now, why is this called the high priestly prayer? If you aren't particularly conversant in the language of the Old Testament, let me summarize quickly. The high priest in the Old Testament was the chief human mediator between God and His covenant people. And only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. This was the, where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. It was behind the curtain. They had a lot of sacrifices throughout the course of the year, And priests would bring in these sacrifices to the outer courts, but no one was allowed into the Holy of Holies but the high priest, and only once a year. And when he came in, he had to be covered head to toe with the blood of the atoning sacrifice. In fact, everything in the Holy of Holies was covered with blood. And this was a sign, it was really emblematic, of the need for humans to be forgiven, needing an atonement so that the wrath of God wouldn't rest on them as unholy people. The high priest made sacrifices ostensibly for the people to God. But these high priestly sacrifices, as we've discovered in the New Testament, were only ceremonial. They were pointing to the ultimate atoning sacrifice in Jesus. As well, they were pointing to the ultimate high priest in christ god's only begotten son jesus would perfectly fulfill the law he would never actively uh, by commission commit a sin or passively by omission commit a sin and thus he'd be the only acceptable and perfect substitute he'd be the only one who could qualify to be an atoning sacrifice now subsequent to his crucifixion and his resurrection he ascended into heaven And he presented his own blood in the Holy of Holies, the real one, not the carbon copy here on earth in the tabernacle, the real tabernacle of the Almighty God. He presented his blood as our high priest, and this would cleanse uh, his covenant people from their sins. And now that sins are forgiven, our high priest Jesus... It says in Hebrews 7, lives to intercede for us. So I, I wrote about this in this week's, Pastor Chuck's blog last week, so if you missed that, you can go online anytime you like. But at the same time, there's a terrific passage in Hebrews 7 that brings out the supremacy of Christ as the high priest. Let me read it for you. Hebrews seven twenty two through 27 This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The High Priestly Prayer. And as I studied these verses, I began to see Jesus' prayer confirm that which the Apostle Paul has been teaching us through the first 16 chapters of his Gospel. And by listening to Jesus pray, we can infer some really important things contained in what he's actually praying. His prayers answer three really important questions. And these are what we're going to look at this morning. One, How do we know this really is what he prayed? How do we know this is really his prayer? These are really, you know, how do we know this is really what Jesus said 2,000 years ago? The second thing, what does Jesus pray about first? I mean, what's really on his mind? Like, you know, you go to God, you got something on your mind. What's the first thing on Jesus' mind? And then thirdly, what do we learn about Jesus by inference? In other words, by virtue of what he's praying, what do we see Jesus saying about himself? Let's begin by asking what is the foundational question How do we know this really is his prayer? And the answer is because John was close to Jesus, both emotionally and physically. Verse 8 of our passage in John 17 says, quoting Jesus, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. This really is the substantive question that really precedes all theological discourse. How do we know that what we have is actually the words Jesus spoke? I mean, we're not the apostles, mere human beings, prone to lapses in memory and negatively influenced by their own nature as well as the culture in which they lived? Yeah, how can we trust these scriptures then? This is such an important topic that in today's bulletin you'll notice that we've announced our inaugural men's conference will make this our subject. Our men of the word one day conference will be designed in part to fortify one's sense that the Old and New Testaments are God's authoritative word for the church. So how would we know this and how would we discern this from Jesus' prayer? In verse 8, Jesus prays and reminds us what he told his disciples previously. He's giving them the word. They now know the truth about who he is. And they will be his conduits. Jesus said the Spirit would help them. Do you remember what he wrote? What Jesus said, what John wrote and what Jesus said in John 14, 25 and 26? These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The church, the theologically orthodox, historic, Christian, Scripture-centered church, takes seriously the authority that is given to the apostles to be the caretakers of Jesus' words and the vessels by which his authoritative word would be recalled. And we have confidence that the Holy Spirit came as Jesus promised, and that the apostles were guided in remembering God's truth, because Jesus validates his word through his resurrection. By rising from the dead... This validates that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is Lord over all, that the Holy Spirit who He promised would come is actually going to come. And therefore, the words that these disciples recalled are overseen, are are superintended, are inspired by that presence. Jesus is the living Lord. Therefore, he can make good on all his promises. And chief among them is that the Holy Spirit lives inside each believer and that this third person of the Trinity will guide us into all truth. But the apostles were given the specific designation as the prophets of New Testament writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit would help them. I'll tell you what, Jesus also he took Scripture seriously regularly quoting the old testament began his ministry in his home synagogue by opening up the prophet and dropping the truth bomb on the congregation jesus didn't like think oh well never mind the old testament i we're doing away with that he said he came to fulfill the old testament he regularly quoted the old testament And in verse 12, he says this in his prayer, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus even saw the necessity of the Old Testament prophets actually having what they said was going to happen, happen. Jesus took it seriously. He saw scripture as the very word of God. And because Jesus is by nature, God, we say that his word is the word of God he saw that what he was saying was authoritative what Jesus was saying he believed was the last word on the subject the final determinant of what is truth and as such he recognized that promises made in God's word must be fulfilled and what was said must actually come true be true or it isn't God's word One of the positive developments of the Internet, aside from reconnecting with old friends and having them mildly insult you, is that in this age where information can be so easily misleading, where we have fake news, and more importantly, we have politicians who, not if, but when they twist the truth to suit their own ends we can actually now do a lot of research on our computers to find out whether or not what they're saying is true and there are two websites committed to this vocation exclusively called politifact and factcheck.org that all they do is assess politicians statements how accurate they are based on data that they collect now why is this necessary Because human beings are broken. They are selfish and prone to lie if it helps their cause. And politicians are the embodiment of this in our culture. The same could and is leveled against those who assembled the New Testament. Its critics say they were biased. They were influenced negatively by their culture. They were all these things. And you know what? They were all those things. The Scripture, though, records Jesus saying that He, by His Holy Spirit, would be the one that would superintend the recollection of what He said. We know John accurately recalled Jesus' prayers because He was there when Jesus prayed. Also, the other apostles were there when Jesus prayed these things. This is a prayer that was taking place in the upper room this was taking place where they were having their dinner, their, their Passover meal together. His high priestly prayer was heard for all to listen to. And the other apostles could have fact-checked John's gospel. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus to help John and others recall accurately. This is why we know that what Jesus is recorded of saying is actually what Jesus said. Here's our second question then. Assuming, and we do as Christians, that this and these are the words of Jesus, these are the prayers of Jesus, what's his priority in prayer? I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but I I can't help but wonder, you know, I know how I pray, like, you know, and I, I know sometimes what my first thoughts are in prayer, Jesus' first prayers, asking for glory for he and the Father. Verse 1, first thing out of his mouth, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Don't know if you recognize it, but this is just another example of Jesus doing as he taught us to do. He said the first thing we should do in prayer is offer up praise and honor to God, to be consumed with the glory of God. That's why he would instruct us to pray our Father in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. First words out of Jesus' mouth are the same ones he said should be the first words out of our mouth. Father, let your glory be what people see. Let them see it in me. Let them see it in you. Let the glory of God be shown. His first priority was to pray that he and the Father would be vindicated. That they would be seen for who they are. Jesus wants to be comprehensively glorified from start to finish. He even says in verse 10 of our section of Scripture here in John 17 that He was glorified through the disciples, through their ministry, in His lifetime. Jesus knew He'd glorified the Father on earth. Look at verse 4 here. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is aware that what he's doing is bringing glory to God, and I think this is a fairly bold declaration to make if it weren't true. I mean, on my best day, I'd still be reluctant to say something akin to, today, I have accomplished all that God gave me to do. I mean, that would presume three things, uh, that I knew the mind of God, uh, that I knew all of what I was supposed to do, and that my assessment of my performance wasn't slanted (laughs) by my need to feel good about myself. Hence, you hopefully never heard me say anything that even resembled that. Jesus can declare it to be true because it was. And his resurrection from the dead confirms his bold statement that in his earthly ministry, he was flawless in his execution and brought glory to God. Another way to see this and understand this is to say that Jesus enabled humanity to see the divine attributes during his earthly ministry. The glory of God was seen. He was glorified through not just the obedience of the Son, but by actually what the Son was doing. The divine characteristics were shown for human beings to observe. God was made visible to us. But according to Jesus, it wasn't just during his 33 years of life and three years of ministry where he glorified the Lord or had this glory verse 5 says that Jesus had this glory before the world existed Jesus prayed this and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that i had with you before the world existed Jesus prayed this in chapter 17 the apostle paul i mean the apostle john excuse me said in the first chapter john 114 that He and the other apostles had seen Jesus' glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is claiming a pre-existence. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. This is the testimony of Scripture and the declaration of historic ecumenical creeds. Jesus existed before He came as the incarnate Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth. He existed one with the Father. Through him all things were made. Jesus clearly believed this. Because he's praying it. And rising from the dead would confirm it to the rest of us. You know, when I'm anxious, it's uh, difficult for the first words of my prayers to God to be praise and honor. You can tell a lot about a person by what comes up first when they speak or pray. Is it my fear? It's a good barometer. Is it my selfishness? Is that what's coming out? When my heart's in the right place, it would be like Jesus's. Jesus was all about the Father's glory. That was priority one. Our third question this morning is, What do we learn about Jesus? And one thing Jesus does for certain in his prayer is confirm that he believed that he was God incarnate. That by nature he was God. He was fully human, but he had a dual nature. He was fully God as well. Holy Father, it says in verse 11, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. With the preamble of his high priestly prayer and uh, his, his own request for he and the Father to be glorified, now behind him, Jesus is going to start praying for others, first by asking for unity. And we'll cover more of that next week. But in doing so, he once again makes a claim about his divinity. Every now and again, if you're a student of theology or the Bible or culture, you'll hear a critic of Christian orthodoxy say something like, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, this just isn't true. Um, In this text, Jesus once again shows that He's distinguishing He and the Father in their being from the creation that they rule. They may be one, as you and I are one. He is separating himself from the creation to say, I have always been a part of you, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Three persons, one being. In this text, Jesus says he wishes Christians could be unified as he and the Father are one. And you hear this claim throughout Jesus' high priestly prayer let alone from the entirety of John's gospel. In verse 2, you hear Jesus say, he always had authority over all flesh. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement for somebody who's just a guy to say. Since, in verse 2, he said, he prayed, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Wow! This... This, this human being has authority over all flesh. That's, that's quite a claim. Jesus is talking to the Father about what has happened, and that is that God has given him the authority to speak and for his words to be considered authoritative. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is how the ante was up post-resurrection when the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus saying that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've told you. This is only possible if Jesus is God. Only God in the the flesh, only God by nature, only someone who was divine could manage, would have the capacity to sovereignly rule the universe. Most of us have enough trouble ordering our own lives. Imagine being responsible to coordinate and superintend all of heaven and on earth for all of its tragic theological flaws. The movie Bruce Almighty starring Jim Carrey certainly points out that being God is not as easy as human beings would like to think it is. Only the divine Father could keep it all together. And one can't have it both ways. If you take seriously what Jesus said, if you're a believer in the red letters, you have to acknowledge that if Jesus wasn't God, then claims like, I have authority over all flesh, that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, that these things are ludicrous. But Jesus wasn't done making claims that would be outlandish for a mere man. He not only said he had authority over all flesh, Jesus was going to make a statement that would put the stake in the ground about who he was by saying he believed that knowing him was life. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent the end of all of this, the end of all of your experience of coming to know Jesus and moving into Christian community and coming to church and being a part of a small group or spending time talking to God every day, the, the, the goal of all this is that we would come to know Jesus, that we would see Him as the means by which we would experience the fullness of life eternal life now this isn't just talking about going to heaven more broadly jesus is saying that the essence of real life is being united in fellowship with the father son and holy spirit knowing our creator and being known and loved by him is what our soul is longing for we hear echoes of that longing in our desire for relationships or success Things that are good, but we turn them into ultimate things. The Bible calls them idols. Things that we have to have or we just can't live. And God is telling me, Chuck, real life, real life is knowing Jesus. The only true God and Jesus whom the Father sent. Human beings, we try to find eternal life in our position and our possessions, and our passions, and our pride. But none will satisfy. They're like salt water. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. And the more you attempt to make this world's good things the focus and source of your life, the less satisfying those things will be. And you'll need more, and more, and more. And you think, if I can just get to whatever that is for you, it could be my business At this level, it could be my relationship at this level. It could be any number of things. We say, if I can just have that. But what will happen is you'll get that and you'll go, that wasn't enough, I need more. We learn by inference here in this text that Jesus believed that he was the source of life. Think of how ridiculous that is if he isn't. Think of the silliness of that. If he isn't. But if he is. Friend if Jesus really did rise from the dead. And we believe he did. The scriptures testify that he did. He sits at the right hand of the father. And he can quench your thirst for life. Jesus is concluding his public ministry. He's praying and next week for his disciples. And then ultimately for us. And we'll look at some of those specific prayers he offers. But suffice to say, we can infer by what Jesus prays that he's concerned that we would primarily know him and that we would find life by being united to him.